promptly at 1.30. So I'm asking everybody if you can take a seat and just a reminder to tell, turn off your cell phones. Because of the sensitive nature of this topic, and it's hit a lot of us close to home in the Indigenous community as well as in the non-Indigenous community, um, it was recommended that we set the tone of the meeting by asking one of our elders to say a prayer. And I'd like to ask Keith, Chief Moon, if you could come up, one of our distinguished elders, to come and set the meeting with a prayer. Okay, Nikso Kualka. Get to connect so much of one of Chris Chikoik. I know his sex that you get, I have that by. Ochtinaka, a Kyakti, Poishpam, one needs to be a man's chair. No Kasak to step your broka. A cocky to myself. Works in Abbey Quacky Connect up so cup. I get to connect so much of Quack, no car, no Christian, no Christian. Greetings to all of you. I just want to uh, say that the, the topic we're, we're going to be discussing is quite contentious, controversial, and all. And that's the parameters of the law. And for myself, I, uh, I'm from the Blood Indian Reservation, and I, uh, I'm a, uh, my, uh, my, my, my ancestor is Mikkeisto. Uh, he was one of the ones that uh, signed the treaty for Treaty 7. So I'm, I'm, our family is, has our connections that way. So I'll say where to, that, I'll and I have to say the, the, the prayer in my language because Blackfoot is my first language. And I'm a crocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopocopoc
Thank you, Keith. <clears throat> Today's SACPA presentation will be, did the accused killers of Colton Bushi and Tina Fontaine benefit from the current practice of jury selection? Um, our speaker today is Ingrid Hess, and Ingrid is a lawyer from Lethbridge who's been practicing for over 21 years. The majority of her career was focused on criminal defense work, representing clients on all kinds of criminal and quasi-criminal charges in the Provincial Court, Court of Queen's Bench, and Court of Appeal of Alberta, including a number of serious jury trials. She has worked extensively with clients of Indigenous background, and some of her important court cases have been cited in academic work pertaining to the treatment of individuals with FASD in the legal system. In 2010, she was drawn into working on the residential school independent assessment process for compensation for serious physical and sexual abuse. In that capacity, she has worked on over 300 individual claims from BC to Ontario and across the North, acquiring a very personal but broad understanding of the historical and cultural circumstances of First Nations, Métis and Inuit people. Ingrid lives in Lethbridge and is a mother to three young men, her eldest a member of the Big Stone Cree Nation and the two younger boys from the Blood Tribe. Please welcome Ingrid Hess. Well, thank you. Um, this is a really uh, challenging topic to cover for me personally. Uh, I'm a first-generation uh, Canadian. My mother came from the Netherlands, my father came from Germany, but I'm also mother to young Indigenous men. And I wanted to start just by giving you a little anecdote which really brought home to me the power of um, this topic on a very personal level. Uh, and it, in the sense of who's on a jury and how would their personal experience um, affect how they perceived a situation. And this has to do with my eldest son, who is a, a visibly indigenous person, 19 years old. Um, he offered very graciously for me one day to pick up his younger brother after a weekend of skiing at Castle Mountain. And we, his younger brother got a ride to a rural property just south of Pincher Creek um, where our friends live, but my oldest son had never been there. He got lost, he didn't follow my directions. <laughs> and when he arrived, I was on the phone with my friend and she said, oh, here he is, I, hear, I, I see him coming up the road. He was driving my famous blue truck. So she saw him coming up and when he came home, I asked him about his experience, um, I thought he would have gone into the house and chatted with them and seen their house. And, 
And he told me, no, I didn't go in. And I was surprised, taken aback. And so I said to him, well, why didn't you go in? And he said, well, I was afraid. And I was really stumped, you know? I couldn't understand. Like, these are lovely people. I've, my, the woman is my friend from high school. Um, but I realized that he had no cell service at their place, so he hadn't been able to double check that this was the right place. He was going up to a door that he wasn't familiar with and wasn't sure who was gonna greet him there. And then he, when he said to me, Mom, I didn't get out because I was afraid again, I realized that my child's experience, the child that I'd raised, who I nurtured as a single parent, was so profoundly different from my own. He was afraid to get out of the car as a young Indigenous man on a rural property in Alberta in light of the outcome of the Colton Bushy case. Uh, and I don't want to refer to it as the Colton Bushy case. I made a point. It's the Gerald Stanley case. Colton Bushy was the victim in that case. Um, but also in light of the recent uh, events in Okotoks where a rural property owner shot at um, trespassers on his property. So that just to give you an idea of the insight that I got from that uh, anecdote in my own personal life. So um, on, on the screen here, I thought it would be good to just put up um, some of these names. The top three are names which I think many of you may be familiar with, if you're familiar with some of our Canadian history, particularly involving Indigenous people as victims in the criminal justice system. Helen Betty Osborne was killed, a teenage girl in the Paw, Manitoba. She was walking late at night. She was abducted by four young white men. She was sexually assaulted and stabbed 50 times. It took over 12 years for her um, two out of the four men um, to be brought before the courts. And in that case, um, the defense lawyer used uh, the preemptory challenge, which I'll discuss in more detail later, to exclude uh, six indigenous people from participation on the jury. Only one of the two men were convicted. The third man in the cohort of four um, was given immunity to uh, give testimony against his two, uh, the two other people, and a fourth person was never even charged. So this case, I think, is very symbolic and in line with the outcome in the Gerald Stanley trial. The other uh, matter, Neil Stonechild, is quite infamous uh, in terms of uh, the conduct of the Saskatchewan police, uh, Saskatoon police, and their practice of taking young Aboriginal men to the edges of town where many of them froze to death. So did Neil Stonechild. No one was ever charged in that case. There was an inquiry. Um, two police officers were later fired. Um, they both, one failed a lie detector test, the other refused to take it, but there were no criminal charges relating to his case. Um, Cindy Gladue, that was a quite recent case. She was the victim of a sexual assault by a truck driver who had her in his hotel room, and he claimed that a gash in her vagina was caused by rough sex, and he was acquitted. The matter is under appeal now, thankfully. The last two names 
Oh, the Dabangi case is a quite recent case, I think from 2015, where a young Aboriginal man in Thunder Bay was found face first in the river. And the assumptions around uh, his demise by the police were that he was an un Aboriginal man intoxicated. They failed to investigate issues like the use of his credit card or his bank card just hours after his, uh, uh, the time of his death and other important links to probable uh, criminal conduct in terms of his death. Um, this is a matter of a recent report, um, a scathing report condemning the conduct of the Thunder Bay police. And then the last two are for local people, um, names of people that we know who died, who are from the uh, community here, uh, the Blood Reserve, and uh, whose cases have never been solved. I wanted to begin my talk with setting um, the context for this discussion because it has to be based in this context, otherwise it's uh, meaningless. And the context is that we have, as a society, studied the issue of the interaction between Indigenous peoples and the criminal justice system, whether they be as accused people or as um, victims of criminal behavior. Um, we've studied it a lot. This just gives you some idea of some of the reports the inquiries and criminal decisions that have had an impact or have uh, voiced uh, uh, opinions about the stat state of affairs of Indigenous people in our criminal justice system. Starting way back in 1989, so that just predated my, the beginning of my law school career and that's what really drew me to uh, work in Southern Alberta, I was only gonna do it for a couple of years, but it's turned into over 21 years. But um, I was uh, drawn to the issues facing indigenous Canadians in, the, in terms of the criminal justice field and the uh, human rights uh, issues relating to their um, over-representation in the criminal, uh, in terms of incarceration in particular, but in the criminal justice system overall. Um, so uh, this case, uh, this just gives you a sense, you know, there was a public inquiry into the administration of justice in the Aboriginal peoples in Manitoba in 1989, and that was because of the dis, uh, this Helen Betty Osborne case, and then the uh, case of a, an Aboriginal man, Mr. Harper, who was um, murdered by a police officer, or well, killed by a police officer in, um, Manitoba, and that sparked the need for this inquiry. And interestingly, um, Justice Murray Sinclair, who now is a senator for the, uh, Canada, uh, sits in the Senate, was involved in that inquiry. And in that inquiry, when it came, the report came out in 1991, it was recommended that the peremptory challenge, which I'll, I'll explain a little bit more in detail after, but that it be abolished already back in 1991 when the report came out from that inquiry in 1989. The report of the Task Force of Criminal Justice and its impact in, on Indian and Métis people of Alberta, 1990. Law Reform Commission of Canada report on Aboriginal peoples and criminal justice, 1991. The Rolf inquiry was a local inquiry. It dealt with policing of uh, blood tribe. 
and because of the Rolf inquiry and the expressions of um, injustices in terms of the investigation of crimes and the uh, uh, way members of the blood tribe were treated by the police force, uh, it resulted in the um, com uh, blood tribe police being established. Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples had um, things to say about Aboriginal people and the justice system. Then the Regina and Gladue case from the Supreme Court of Canada in 1991 was a seminal uh, case dealing with the interpretation of uh, recent, at that time, amendments to the criminal code. In 1996, the criminal code was amended and um, there was a provision added to the criminal code in terms of sentencing that required the courts to take into consideration the Aboriginal background of offenders sentenced uh, by the courts. And the Regina and Gladue decision was, uh, gave some guidance as to how these, um, uh, that particular section of the criminal code had to be interpreted. The interesting thing, and the interesting thing about all of these reports is how little we've actually achieved in terms of the recommendations that can't come out over and over again to make changes in the criminal justice system. So Regina and Gladue stood for the principle that we must take into account an Aboriginal offender's uh, background as an Aboriginal person in terms of deciding what a proper and fit sentence is and that might in certain circumstances mean that an Indigenous person who has been um, you know, impacted by the colonialism and uh, other issues relating to the, um, the life experience of an Indigenous person might get a lesser sentence than a non-Indigenous person. That's what the case says. In fact, we know because 10 years after Glad You came out, they did a review and uh, uh, there was a learned uh, article written in a law review journal that assessed, has Glad You made a difference for Indigenous offenders? And the shocking conclusion of that um, Law Journal article was that, in fact, more non-Indigenous offenders got the advantage of the changes to the criminal code in 1996, such as the um, beginning of uh, conditional sentences where you could serve your sentence at home instead of in jail. Um, it was uh, benefiting non-Indigenous offenders um, disproportionately. So uh, very interesting and uh, compelling article about the impact. You know, the intention was that Glad You would make a difference for people. And after 10 years of Glad You, it actually hadn't made much of a difference. The Ipperwash inquiry following the standoff um, at Ipperwash where um, a participant in the, um, in the standoff, Mr. George, forget his first name. Anyway, he was killed. Dudley George, yeah. Um, the report on the commission of inquiry regarding Neil Stonechild, I had his name up, that was a report that basically came out and concluded that yes, this is what's happening. Young Indigenous men are being taken to the edge of town and left to freeze to death without shoes and just in t-shirts, and it happened repeatedly. First Nation representative of, on Ontario juries, 2013, uh, retired Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, Yakabuchi, concluded that, uh, was, was tasked with writing how we could improve um, jury selection issues so that um, 
the issue of representativeness of juries in terms of uh, indigenous people being a participant in juries would improve. Uh, in that inquiry and the many, many recommendations he made, he agreed with the 1991 uh, report on um, Manitoba justice and decided that, uh, and recommended again that preemptory challenges should be uh, eliminated. So, um, and I just put this last one uh, on there. There was a report just came out um, a matter of weeks ago. A UBC law professor uh, gave the province of Alberta overall a B for their justice system evaluations, but gave them an F in terms of the failure of Alberta to report indigenous incarceration rates. Um, they gave an explanation as to why that happened, but interestingly, the incarceration rates of indigenous people just get worse and worse and worse. So whereas the population um, has six per, in Alberta 6% indigenous people approximately, 38% uh, of indigenous people, uh, males, in, in uh, correctional facilities in Alberta, and 52% of women are of indigenous origin in, in, are incarcerated in Alberta. So this might be a little bit drier <laughs> portion of my talk, but just I think it's important that we understand a little bit about why we have trials by jury in Alberta uh, to uh, explain you know, the, the way we get to what a jury looks like and what their function is. So um, jury in Alberta and all across Canada is part of our superior court process in criminal cases. So. We have two levels of court in almost every jurisdiction in Alberta. We have provincial court in um, Alberta. It's usually the court of first instance. So when you're charged, that's where you normally appear. But if your case is tried, depending on the seriousness of it, it can end up in the superior court. So uh, accused people, but our superior court in Alberta is called the Court of Queen's Bench. Other in BC, it's called BC Supreme Court. Ontario, also Ontario Supreme Court. I think Saskatchewan is Queen's Bench as well. So an accused person has the right to be tried by a jury in all cases where the punishment is five years of imprisonment or greater, but that's by election in most cases. So the accused can elect to have a trial by jury, but they don't have to if they don't want to. But for certain offenses, according to our criminal code, murder, second degree and first degree, they must be tried by a court composed of both a justice and a jury unless both the Crown and the defense agree. So in some circumstances, the Crown will not agree to give up the jury in a trial. In some cases, the defense wants to have a jury. So unless they both agree, it's going to be trial by judge and jury in cases such as the Bushi case, uh, where Mr. Bushi was the victim, or in the case of... Uh, Mr. Cormier, who was accused of murdering Tina Fontaine. Um, in a criminal trial with a jury, the judge is the trier of the law. So he decides issues or she decides issues as to what is relevant, what evidence is admissible. Um, for, for example, if there's an expert witness, the 
judge will decide whether that witness can be qualified as an expert. But the jury decides uh, issues of fact. So the jury makes determinations about how the evidence will be weighed once the evidence is admitted into the trial. The jury is tasked with applying the law to the facts, whether the evidence should be believed or not, whether a witness's testimony is accepted or rejected, either in whole or part, or how much weight to give to some pieces of evidence. And um, the, the reason we have juries is, is uh, based in the historical development of our, of our criminal justice system, which we inherited from the British. Um, in jury trials, we task average citizens who have no expertise in criminal justice, and, and in fact, people with expertise in criminal justice are not allowed to participate in jury trials. Um, the functions of juries, uh, um, so the basic notion behind the use of juries is that rather than leaving the important decision in a serious criminal trial where the liberty of accused person is often at stake to a single state-appointed uh, judge, members of the community relying on their common wisdom and experience and reflecting societal values will apply the law fairly. And we expect juries to be representative of society, to be unbiased, indifferent, and impartial, and to only consider the facts of the case and apply the law as they're instructed to do so by the judge, and to function through cohesion and consensus to come up with a unanimous decision. If they can't, the jury is dismissed and the case is called is um, over. It's hung, so there's no outcome. So in terms of the composition of a jury, there's two elements to how we come up with a, a jury, how it's composed. The first is uh, who actually um, uh, is the creation of the jury pool. So that's the, the larger pool of people from which the jury is created. Um, in terms of the jury pool in Alberta, that we use the motor vehicle registries, which can also include people who don't drive. I, I confirm that because I thought that that was a bit of an issue. But if you have an Alberta um, ID, you will also be part of potentially of a jury pool. And then the head clerk of the Court of Queen's Bench determines a radius around the area uh, in question, like the city of Lethbridge or Fort McLeod or Pincher Creek. And um, she then uh, comply, compiles a list of potential jurors who are summoned to appear in court. Um, and some of them can be excused by, uh, under special circumstances. I had an interview in preparation for today with the head clerk here in Lethbridge, and she advised me that she is very much alive, and I believe her to be alive to the issues of representativeness of uh, jury in terms of creation of this jury pool. She told me that it's her practice now to extend the radius um, used to draw from so that it includes people whose addresses um, fall within the two main First Nation territories in southwestern Alberta. And just that act alone and that intentional um, 
way of creating the jury pool has already increased the selection radius and had a beneficial impact in terms of resulting in more representative juries. A recent jury in Lethbridge had two Indigenous people on it. Um, I, I guess I'm running out of time, so I'm going <laughs> to shorten my, my uh, talk a little bit. But um, there was a Supreme Court of Canada case in 2015 that dealt with um, this issue of whether uh, juries are representative. And uh, it's clear um, that if juries are not representative, and the process used to create this jury pool is not representative of the community in terms of that you know certain people are excluded by how the jury pool is created, that will be a, a breach or a violation of the charter. So courts and clerks and people that are tasked with creating jury pools are very live to the issue that they must be representative. They must aim to make jury pools representative or they'll be in violation of a, char of a person's charter rights. Um, This, and this issue has been uh, coming up not only in Canada. In fact, in South Africa, they have no longer juries uh, because of the problems with uh, the makeup of juries. I mean, in the day of apartheid, all white juries and uh, the problems associated with that. So the second and the most important for our discussion today, um, part of how a jury is created is called the impaneling. So from the jury pool, you... Uh, select actual jury members. <clears throat> and in Canada, it's very different than on TV. You don't get to, to uh, cross-examine the, the jury uh, members. We only learn about their name, their occupation, and where they're from. So a jury person will be called in front of the two lawyers, say they were uh, sitting here at the front of the room, the jury person would come before them and then the lawyers would have an opportunity to say whether they uh, had a challenge to that person's appearance on the jury. The, there can be challenge for cause, so if, you know, if a person has a notorious presence perhaps on Facebook or something like that and has you know, expressed biased ideas, that may be a reason to challenge for cause. <coughs> but the more problematic um, issue is this preemptory challenge that was used in the Gerald Stanley trial. Preemptory challenges are determined by the criminal code. They're available to both the Crown and to the defense to eliminate prospective jurors without any need to provide a reason. Um, both the Crown and the defense have the same number of Preemptory challenges in the terms of a first-degree murder trial it would be 20, second-degree it would be 12 each. And we know from credible reports of the Gerald Stanley trial that the defense used preemptory challenges to exclude five jurors who appeared to be of Indigenous heritage from the jury, which resulted in a jury comprised ostensibly of, only, of 12 only non-Indigenous people. It is this particular stage of the jury selection process that has drawn extensive criticism in the aftermath of the Gerald Stanley acquittal. The perception of the Bushi family was that the deck was stacked against them. The federal justice minister expressed concern about the underrepresentation <coughs> of indigenous jurors when asked to comment on the verdict. Various academics have um, 
spoken out about it. UB, uh, University of Alberta law professor Stephen Penny said that preemptory challenges invite bias, not, um, they invite bias not only on the basis of race, but also gender and other factors. And he went on to say, it's not a value we should allow in our system. Another famous law professor from the University of Toronto, Kent Roach, found the anger of the Bushi family to be justified. He believes that preemptory challenges should be done away with. And I'll just remind you that 27 years ago, that um, inquiry in Manitoba recommended that we do away with preemptory challenges back then. So I myself have practiced as a criminal defense lawyer. So, you know, I struggled with this because I, I have a duty to do the best for my client. So I think, and oftentimes I have represented indigenous people in jury situations. So I think, okay, well, if I'm not, you know, if a person presents themselves and my assessment of them just by looking at them is that I don't think they're going to give my my person a fair shot, you know, maybe will be an unfavorable person in a jury. If I if I don't have the right to say challenge, uh, that's kind of difficult to imagine. But ultimately, uh, the the circumstance of our criminal justice system allowing participants in it to create a white-only jury is too repugnant of a circumstance not to cry out for change. That's, and I, as a defense lawyer, have to work with the law. If the law changes and I'm not allowed these peremptory challenges, that's just a fact of how I have to do my work. And so <coughs> I fully endorse the change um, recommended that we no longer have preemptory challenges because it's just repugnant that this happened. The perception of injustice is strong and justifiable. We don't know what the jury thought or how they came to their decision. We can't know in Canada because juries are not allowed ever under punishment of the law to speak about how they arrived at their verdict in Canada, unlike in the United States where you see reporters and other people interviewing jurors. But um, it's, it's my view and it's shared by many. I actually wanted to cite some other articles and things, but I've run out of time. <laughs> but it's my view and it's shared extensively not only by indigenous people that um, we must do something and we must act precipitously, quickly to change these um, things so that uh, these kind of perceived injustices don't uh, continue. Um, and, and I draw on my own experience that I told you about earlier to just imagine how a jury compi comprised of only non-Indigenous people who are asked to use their life experience, their common sense, which might differ from the experiences of other people, particularly in that setting of Northwestern Saskatchewan, how it might have impacted the jury. We don't know, but um, the perception of justice is paramount. And in order for justice to be done, we need to make a change. It comes ultimately down to the issue 
if we leave preemptory challenges in place and they're used to create all white juries of potentially, that can potentially influence the outcome of a trial, then the elimination of such challenges is required, plain and simple. <laughs>